0: I invite you to take your Bible and turn tonight to the book of Haggai once again. It won't be long, just as it begins, the series on Haggai will end because there are only two chapters in the book of Haggai. There are four messages recorded that were given from the Lord to his people through this prophet surrounding this theme of God's work first, the preeminence of God's work and the importance. Of giving our devotion to it. And tonight in Haggai chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 tonight as we go along, and we're going to see God's strength for his work. The last time what we looked at in the last couple of times is uh, we saw that the, the people had returned to Israel and returned to Jerusalem uh, from the captivity, uh, and now under the, the Persian Empire, And they had been given the resources and the calling of of God to rebuild the temple. But they had not done so. They had laid the foundation and then they had put it off. And in the meantime, they had built their own houses and taken care of their own things. But they had not taken care of God's house. And so through Haggai, God rebukes his people. And then the people, which we saw last time, responded to that in obedience to God. And so now we get to Haggai chapter 2 while the work's been going on and we see the next message that God has for his people in the midst of this project. Have you ever felt the power of discouragement in your life? Have you ever felt discouraged over something that you you do or, or were trying to do or something that you were trying to implement into your life? I mean, The new workout routine that isn't easy or doesn't seem to be effective, a new hobby that we want to learn to help broaden our horizons, and it proves, we hoped it would be, you know, second nature. You ever picked up something new you wanted to learn and thought, well, that'll just come easy, and it doesn't come very easy, and you get really discouraged about it. The day-to-day responsibilities, as we try to stay on top of them, they get out of hand, right? And all the more they cause us to give up and quit, Discouragement is an enemy that if you live any amount of time on this earth, you're going to face it. And in the work of God, discouragement is a tool in the hands of Satan that he uses to derail us in our spiritual lives as well. The seeming success of other people, the presumed glory days of the past, and the seeming ineffectiveness of yourself can be incredibly discouraging in your own walk with the Lord. And I would venture to guess that if you've walked with the Lord any amount of time, you've faced spiritual discouragement in your life. But in God's work, we need to look beyond ourselves and look to God. Because he is our strength. He is the one who gets the glory, and he is the one we aim to please. And so here in the second message that Haggai delivers we see the discouragement the Jewish people have run into and the promises of hope, strength, and glory that God gives to his people. And what you see in this passage tonight is God promises to glorify himself in his work and empowers his people to do that work. God makes us a promise. He made his, his people a promise, and that promise applies to, the, to those who follow God today that, that he will glorify himself in his work. You understand that God doesn't promise to glorify you and me, right? God promises to glorify himself. The glory of God is always preeminent, as it should be. And then as we engage to do the work that God has called us to do, he's the one who gives us the strength and the ability to do it, and we see that in the lives of his own people. And so here, as we get to Haggai chapter 2, in verses 1 through 3, we see that the present reality that the people are facing, and it begins with a little bit of an introduction to this message. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying... So the second message from, from God through Haggai, comes less than two months after the first message that's recorded in chapter one. And if you want a date that helps maybe fit your brain and my brain a little bit easier, um, this date that's recorded here would be equivalent to what we know as October 17th, 520 BC. Now obviously that calendar wasn't the normal cal- the calendar that was used in the Jewish people there and wasn't complete the complete calendar that would even be used eventually uh, as how we use it today but that helps our brains uh, to kind of fit it into what time of year it is and the people have officially been at work for about a month now now if you remember last time at the end of the chapter there was a little bit of delay between the time that they said okay we're going to do the work and the time that they got to the work because they had some harvest to take care of they had some supplies to gather that's that's kind of what we gather from there but they were they were still uh, getting into the work that God had given to them, but the work was slow. And first, that's because the undoubtedly poor condition of the temple site. So it had been about sixty-six years at this point since the temple had been destroyed. There would be rubble they had to clear. There were things that needed to be to, needed to be assessed. I mean, even if they laid the foundation, there's still things they had to work through. But secondly, we need to also see there have been some prescribed interruptions to the people's work. There was one day a week that God's people did not work, and that day was the, the Sabbath, right? And that was a day that was set aside for the worship of God, uh, for the rest of his people, and, and so they didn't work on the Sabbath. You also would, would under, need, need to understand, we also need to understand that the seventh month of the Jewish calendar has several important dates, So on the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets was observed. On the tenth day of that month, the Day of Atonement was observed. And from the 15th to the 22nd of that month, to the month that they're in, the Feast of Tabernacles was held. These are all things that the people were, were required by God's law to observe. And so that's going to provide some interruptions to what God has called them to do. And the Feast of Tabernacles is especially important to the life of Israel. It was also one that you would, you'll find as you go through the history of Israel that, that sometimes they had a tendency to miss some of these things. They would forget what God had told them to do. But almost never do they miss the Feast of Tabernacles. It's something that they always remember and they, and they, they seem to come back to because it was a time of remembering God's goodness. During that feast, the people would live in makeshift shelters to remind them of their ancestors' trek through the wilderness, from Egypt. And it was a time that was set aside to praise God as they remembered those pilgrim days coming out of the land of Egypt. It was also a time for the people to give thanks to God for the harvest they had recently gathered in as they sought his blessing for the other harvests that were to come in the next year. And it should be noted that it was during the Feast of Tabernacles that King Solomon dedicated the first temple. We read in 1 Kings 8-2, Therefore, all the men of Israel assemble with King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanem, which is the seventh month. And so, quite fittingly, on this last regular day of the feast, because the feast normally ended on a Sabbath day, Haggai now gets up to address the people about the work that they're doing to build this rebuild this temple. He is to speak here. He's to address Zerubbabel, who's the governor, right? The civil leader. He's to address Joshua, the high priest, the, people, the, the spiritual leader of the people. And all of the people gathered there. And again, they're, they're referred to by God as the remnant. Those whom God has returned to their land. And he's to, to show them that God has, has seen their work of obedience. And he's promised to be with them in that work. But he also knows the challenges they face, the physical challenges, and the challenges of their own hearts that they face. And here, he addresses the discouragement that is setting in on his people. And it begins by observing the reality that they live in. So the present reality shows us there's a very insignificant sight that's going on. Look at verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? So verse 3 is loaded with these rhetorical questions, these questions that that are set up to provoke the thoughts of the people, the the questions that are set to to show the situation and the reality of what the people are facing in Jerusalem. As, As Haggai, as God through Haggai asked the people, who is among you who saw what this temple used to be? Now, it is quite possible that there were a few people who had been around and seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. But that number would be incredibly low. Still, the people knew the stories of Solomon and his work for the Lord. Solomon was the king who had it all. He was the king who enjoyed the greatest peace and the greatest prosperity in the nation of Israel. And one of my favorite verses um, that comes out of out of Solomon's reign to help us understand is 1 Kings ten twenty one where it says all King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold not one was silver why for this that is silver was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon can you imagine being so rich and having so much that somebody said hey I have this silver and you're like I mean that's nothing right that's what we give to the poor people on the street right that's it's it's mind boggling right it's it's hard to imagine that that they just didn't even think of silver as as anything to be worthy of and so they made everything out of gold david solomon's father had given him everything he needed to enjoy a peaceful and a prosperous kingdom and david had also prepared much of the 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 materials that were needed to build the temple and so We read things like the following when it comes to the construction of the temple. We could pull out many verses about the construction of the temple. I just want to give you two here from 1 Kings chapter. This should be 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 21 and 22. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold he stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold the whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple also he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary just take those two verses from first kings chapter six and think about that you're in this temple which wasn't tremendously huge And the entire thing is covered with what? Gold. That's a pretty impressive place, right? Um, Some of you may have been here last year. um, I actually taught a a lesson in Sunday school on the temple. And I showed a video of the temple and what, what the inside of it looked like. It's a fascinating thing to really think about what that would have looked like, how it was filled with gold. Solomon built this magnificent temple, truly seeking to use the best of his resources to worship and honor God, and the result was everything he would have hoped for. It was truly a testimony of the Lord's glory and presence, yet the greatest thing about it wasn't the gold and the opulence, but it was the fact that God was honored and pleased by it, and his presence dwelt there in the temple. The physical beauty of that temple still rang in the hearts of the people. So just imagine, this is your history, right? Some of the people may have seen it. Others have undoubtedly heard the stories passed down. Um, We know that Babylon raided the temple and took these things back with them to their their nation. And now you're looking, with this in your mind, you're looking out over this, this husk, this shell, this place that's almost been wiped clean and the foundation's been laid, do you see how the discouragement sets up? Well, it sure ain't what it used to be, right? That's, that's not what it was. And the view is much different out there. This shell of a temple is nothing in comparison to what it once had been. The, the people had nowhere near the resources of Solomon that, that he had enjoyed, right? And so they're discouraged they look at the work before them, and the task is huge. And you can almost feel through these questions in verse 3 that the people are almost thinking, I mean, even if we get it done, right, even if we, we finish the temple, what good is it going to be, right? I mean, it's never going to look like it used to look. They'll never be able to bring back the temple that like it once was. And once again, God, in, these, in this verse, is, is targeting their, their presuppositions and their, their set mindsets. In the first message, God targeted their, their excuses and their presuppositions they had made. Now God is going after their discouraged hearts. And from a human standpoint, I think we could understand the discouragement the Israelites face. We, too, would probably have been discouraged in the work of God there. But we too probably have been discouraged in God's work in our own lives. We look at what we've been given to do or what we've participated in and we wonder, I mean, what good is it? I don't have the talents, the time, the resources, the numbers or more to make it as good as fill in the blank, right? Right? And we fall into the trap of, of comparing our lives and our ministries and, and our lives and our churches and our lives and, and, and the people we have connection with to other people. Say, well, I mean, look what they're doing and look what that's doing and look what that, how can we ever compete with that? And like the Israelites, we lose heart in serving the Lord because of the reality we feel that's in front of us. The problem is you can't look at the physical to determine the importance of a work to God. We have to refocus on the Lord, and that's what God reminds his people of. God is reminding them of the reality of the work they have in him with his presence. What you see secondly in verses 4 and 5 is you see God reminds them of his presence. Not only do you have the present reality that's in front of them, but you have the presence of God among them, and in verse 4, God reminds them of his strength that he has given them. Yet now... Be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So God moves now into his reassurance for the people in the work they're doing that He had reproved and he had rebuked them in the first message and he had called out their observations of the work in the first part of the second message because here they were undertaking a large task and one that would physically seem diminutive when compared to the work of the past. But that does not mean that the work is unimportant to God and it does not mean that God is not pleased by their work. Instead of being discouraged, what does God tell them to do? You see it three times in this verse. What does he tell them to do? To be strong. He specifically calls on the political and the spiritual leadership of Jerusalem to be strong. He calls for the people to be strong. And how many of you recognize that phrase from the history of Israel? This is not the first time that God has, has used this phrase. Moses and God both commanded to Joshua to be strong. David told Solomon when he charged him to build the temple, you know what David told Solomon? Be strong. And now God calls for his people to be strong once again. They're discouraged. They felt they couldn't match the glory of the former temple. He encourages them, okay, Let's be strong. Let's do the work. Let's recommit to the strength in his calling. But I want want you to notice something about the focus of the strength. This is not some kind of pep talk. This is not something they well up within themselves. This is not a mantra that people are to repeat. God's not saying, okay, when you feel discouraged, I want you to go to your happy place and repeat this. Be strong. Be strong. Be strong. And then you're strong. You can do what you want to do. Right? This is not a self-help guide. This is not a you can do it. Right? This is not a, a cat poster hanging on a wall. Hang in there. Right? Instead, he shows them something. He says to all these people, be strong. Be strong. Be strong to do the work. And why does he say that at the end of verse 4? Why can you be strong? For I am with you. That's where it's driving. That's the crux of the message right here. The God of all strength and the God of all power is in their midst. Therefore, they could find strength in him to do the work That he has called them to do. His presence with them means that he approves of and delights in their work. This is reason indeed to be strong in that work. If you know that God approves of and delights in what you're doing, it's pretty easy to be strong, isn't it? Easier, right? To be strong in him. Because if God is with them, they cannot fail, but instead they will accomplish the work he has in store for them to do. If God is with us, and we are doing the work of God that he has called us to do, it doesn't matter the size, the effectiveness, the visibility, or any other human standard of measurement. We are simply called to remain faithful to him, and he will give us the strength to take care of the results. Because that's his business, not ours. God promised to be with his people, and then he calls on their history to reinforce the promise that he has made. You see not only God's strength, but God's covenant in verse 5. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So God reminds his people here, of the covenant that he has with them. God had promised to be with them. He promised to be their God. He promised his spirit to be amongst them. And here he revisits this covenant again. Did you know that God always keeps his covenants? And did you know that God's keeping of his covenant doesn't depend on you and me? It depends on him. When God, at the very beginning of the nation of Israel made a covenant with Abraham that he would bring forth descendants from Abraham and he would make a great nation of Abraham. Whom By whom did God swear to that he would keep that covenant? Himself. Because he's God, right? And you've read the book of Genesis, hopefully. You find out that everybody in the book of Genesis, they're all really good at following God, aren't they? Not so much. But does God keep his covenant? Yeah. Why? Because it doesn't depend on them. It depends on God. Now, are there consequences for sin? Absolutely. But God secures his covenants with himself, which is the greatest promise he can make. And he brings this covenant with his people to the forefront once again here. And in so doing, he reminds them of his presence in their midst, that they are not alone in their work. Therefore, they need not fear. They can take courage for the work ahead. They can take strength from God. And today, you know, we have temptation to fear in the work of God. We say things or think things like, I'm not enough. Well, God could never use me. I would just mess it up. Well, I wouldn't know what to do. Or, you know, I'll never be as successful as fill in the blank or maybe even just well that seems impossible and all of these and more are offered in our minds or sometimes we even verbalize them and the truth is if if these statements are the representation of our thinking i'll tell you right now they're right and here's what i mean by that you and i can't do it we're going to mess up and in our own strength it's going to be impossible If it depends on us. But in the end, true effectiveness and success for God's work doesn't depend on our definitions and our strength. It depends on God, his definition, and his strength. God has an undying love for his people. Here in in the book of Haggai, we see a people who had failed the covenant and paid the price But God now renews his commitment to them, reassuring them. And you and I and Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with God. We can follow his calling in our lives. We can enjoy his strength in our lives to do what he's called us to do. And as the people took strength in God, he then also promised the future fulfillment of his work in their midst. And so we see, as we close out the chapter, or sorry, this section tonight, in in verses 6 through 9, we see the promised future that God tells them will come. In verses 6 and 7, God tells his people about the return of glory that is coming to the temple. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The people are discouraged by the lackluster appearance of the temple. They didn't have the resources to make it like it had once been. God not only encourages them to continue in his work for their time, but now he points them ahead to a glorious future. God promises that there is coming a day when he will bring glory back to the temple. God speaks here in verse uh, 6 and into verse 7 that he would shake heaven and earth. He would shake the nations. This is a picture of an earthquake, and and, and this picture was used by God in in the scriptures here as a symbol of God's supernatural intervention on behalf of his people. The God who controls all things and, and and who has just controlled the consequences his people receive for disobedience will now exercise that control to do great things on their behalf. And we're reminded once again here of God's sovereign power. Everything that happens in life is in God's purview and in his control. Because that's who he is. He's God. He uses all things, all people, and all events for his ultimate purposes. God is not the bringer of evil, but nothing that happens that is evil takes God by surprise. It doesn't matter what is going on or what our circumstances are, we can still trust him. I'm reminded of this verse that Solomon gives us in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2. Every way of man, that's not the right verse. I must have sent the wrong verse. Okay, it's Proverbs 21, 1, okay? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Do you realize that even in a world gone wrong, God is sovereign? In a world gone wrong, God is sovereign. Would you say the world's gone wrong? Yeah. Even when governments are full of sinful people, promoting sinful agendas, God is still on the ultimate throne. He guides, He directs, and that doesn't mean we don't face hardships, or that sin won't continue to push things further into the darkness, but it does mean that we can continue to rest in and trust him. And what does God promise his people specifically here? He promises to adorn the future temple temple in glorious splendor. In verse 7, really, uh, probably a better way to translate the second half of verse 7 would be this. So that the treasures of all nations shall come in... And I will fill this house with glory. The New King James Version takes what what Haggai says here as a messianic prophecy, but probably it isn't necessarily exclusively a messianic prophecy. What God is talking about is his actual work in the temple, that he would move the nations to bring their treasures, their valuables to to the people, to the temple, to adorn it with splendor and beauty. That certainly reminds us of Solomon's temple. Because the nation of Israel under him enjoyed the wealth of so many nations pouring in. And God promises that it will happen again. And you realize that the people that hear this message, they see a partial fulfillment of that in the day they live. Who is funding the rebuilding of the temple at the time of Haggai? The Persian, the Persian Empire, Right? I mean, they're the ones who who started the whole thing, went back with Cyrus. Does that not seem like they're bringing treasures to the people so they can rebuild the temple? I mean, they don't have to do that. But why are they doing that? Because God is sovereign. God had moved in a foreign nation to willingly supply valuable means to do the work of the temple. But this prophecy also has eschatological implications, things that will happen in the last days. Because one day every knee will bow, one day every nation will recognize the preeminence of God, and one day all people will worship him. And in that day, the splendor of the temple will be restored once and for all. In other passages in the Old Testament, God speaks of a temple to be built in his eternal kingdom. And there, this prophecy that Haggai gives will find its greatest fulfillment, And there, the greatest of all treasures will be seen, and that is the glory of God. And so this is then, again, what the people can hope in and from which they can draw strength, that God is glorified in their work, and that's the greatest thing, that above all, God be glorified. No amount of gold and opulence and expensive things can compare to the glory of God. And so the people should take delight in doing God's work because they are working for, as we see in verses 8 and 9, the owner of it all. The Lord says, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. You look at these promises that God makes. I mean, they're pretty big promises, right? I'm going to shake the nations. I'm going to bring these things here. It's going to be a glorious place. It's going to be greater than it was before. And he can make those promises because of who he is. He owns everything. Though silver and gold may sit in the vaults and treasuries of nations, it ultimately does not belong to those people. It all belongs to God. So therefore, he is in control of it. And therefore, the people can take courage in the promises of God. The temple they work on may now look broken down and without great promise, but one day it'll be a very different story. One day, the glory of the temple built by the people would experience something amazing. The temple that's built here under Haggai, over the, we read about here, but it takes place in the future as well, after the, after the book of Haggai, they continue to build it, would one day be renovated by a guy named Herod. You ever heard that name before? And it was in this very temple that was rebuilt after Haggai's messages and was renovated by Herod. Do you know who stood in that temple? Jesus. We just finished last week, John chapter 8, talking about the Feast of Tabernacles and what Jesus was saying. Do you know where he was standing when that was going on? He was standing in the temple. My friend, if that's not the glory of God returning to the temple, I don't know what is, right? What an amazing thing. And in the messianic age to come, Jesus will return and bring the final promise that God makes in this message. The final promise is this, and in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. One day, Jesus will bring ultimate, final peace. We live in a world that strives after peace, supposedly, right? I mean, how many presidents have promised us peace in the Middle East, right? Or peace for this, or peace for that, or or we're going to have peace here. But we live in a world of strife, conflict, and war as nations war with one another, Neighbors feud and fight. Families are in upheaval. But one day God promises peace will reign on the earth. And this is the promise of God through Jesus. And he brings us that peace even today in salvation. Because of Jesus, you and I can enjoy peace with God. That's not to be undersold. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you live a life of guilt and turmoil, and you don't know where to turn. There is no peace in your heart. Jesus brings peace. And one day, all will live at peace with one another when he rules and reigns for all of eternity. And as the owner of it all, God is in charge of it all, and he knows all things. So therefore, he can encourage his people in their work. They can find his strength to do his work and need not look at outward man-made comparisons to gauge how they're doing. Instead, they can glorify God, leaving the details to him. And what you'll find, not only here, what God is giving, promises to his people, but in your own life, you'll find this. God's promises for the future fuel our present service to him. When you stop and think about who God is and what he's going to do for you and, and how he's going to reign and, and how he's going to draw, bring you home one day to heaven or, and reign on this earth and, and if, you, if you have a relationship with him, will be with him, that should fuel the present reality you live in because there's hope. There's an expectation. God promises to glorify himself and his work, and he empowers his people to do that work. God has called us to do his work. And through salvation in Jesus, we can become God's children, and with his strength, we can do his work. God doesn't call you to a certain level of success in order to be accepted by him. Instead, he calls you to be faithful to do his work. And as you faithfully serve him, he will work in and through you to bring about the work that he has for you. So be strong in your service to God. Don't rely on your own resources, talents, and strength, but use what God has given you to its greatest potential by leaning into the power of Almighty God. And just as he promised to be with his people in Haggai's day, he promises to be with you today to accomplish his work to the praise of his glorious grace. So how do we live for God? We depend on his strength. How do we keep going when we're discouraged? We look to God. And that requires us to have an active, ongoing relationship with God. Don't let the well run dry, and so we're trying to dig into our own strength. But we stay in the word of God, and we stay close to him. Father, we thank you for letting us be here again tonight to study your word together. Thank you for the challenge of your word and the encouragement of your word. Lord, not only does the word of God convict us of sin and compel us to to living in a way that honors you, but it also encourages us to live in such a way and empowers us to live in such a way. It reminds us of the strength of the Holy Spirit that you have given your own. We ask tonight that you would encourage discouraged hearts, you would re-strengthen the weak, you would show us that as we follow you and we depend on you, we can live in a way that honors you and we can know that you are glorified because we obey you. Be with us now as we prepare to go into our week, that you would help us as we go um, about our business, if we have things to do. Um, places to be, and interactions that are in front of us, that you would help us to do these things to your honor, your glory, help us to spread the news of who you are and, and talk of you to others. In your name we pray. Amen.